Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And this week, Cameron and I were honored to spend some time chatting with Steve Stricker, who shouldn't need much of an introduction, 12-time PGA Tour winner, President's Cup captain, and now he's our U.S. Ryder Cup captain in 2021. And as you'll hear, and as he has reputation for, he's just a really great guy. He's universally liked among his peers and obviously has a ton of wisdom from his experience competing at the top of the game for nearly three decades. So enjoy some Ryder Cup insights that he shares with us. And really, I was most interested in hearing about the three-year dip and performance in the middle of his career and how he fought his way back. Steve lost his tour card in 2004 after a period that included 38 missed cuts and 69 starts. And then he came back and he won comeback player of the year in consecutive years. And for the better part of the next decade was the model of consistency at one point making 49 straight cuts. And we spent a lot of time digging into how he orchestrated that comeback. So please enjoy episode 77 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Steve Stricker. But first, do yourself a favor, go to TotalGolfTrainer.com and pick up a TGT 3.0 kit. This is by far our most used training aid at Altus, and it's a no-brainer for a Christmas gift. Buy one for yourself, buy one for your golf buddies. It's such an easy solution to getting the golfer in your life something that they will be excited about and actually use. It's our Swiss Army knife. We use it for a million things. It can be used to improve chipping, pitching, bunker play, full swing with a number of settings that provide instant feedback on pretty much any technical cue that you like. And we love how adjustable it is. So head to TotalGolfTrainer.com. Use the code EARNYOUREDGE for a discount. They also have some Christmas promotions that they're running over there as well. But now, stay tuned. Please enjoy our chat with Ryder Cup captain, Steve Stricker. One other quick piece of background there, Steve, just so you know, uh, Corey, and he's really hopeful that uh, Harry Higgs, he's prime yes. fan of the PGA Tour, qualifies That's by right. your own merit for the Ryder yeah. Cup next year. But in the absence of that, he's really hoping this conversation goes a long way. <laughs> At the very least, I can say, you know what, Harry, I put in a call with Steve. That's I did right. my best to help you out. And I can check that box and say that I've done that as a coach. So You got yeah. it. <laughs> Exactly. If we could all like wear our shirts as cool as he wears his, we'd be uh, we'd be all right, wouldn't we? No, yeah, you may have some issues in the uniform department there yeah. if, if he does end up on that team. Yeah, well, that's brilliant, Taylor. There, Steve, yeah. we're so thankful for you uh, chiseling out some time here in your schedule to to spend with us, and I'm clearly with a a career that's gone as long as an, and as successful as it has been. There are many directions that we could go, and in connecting with you and thinking about getting this scheduled, you mentioned that it was the off season. You do a lot of hunting in the off season. And I've actually, ironically, just, I'm just now finishing a 14 day quarantine for COVID. Yeah. My, my course was absent any symptoms, which was fortunate for me, but it gave me a good period of time to spend with my 11 year old son or almost 11 year old son playing uh, Call, Call of Duty. And I read not only hunting in the real world, the world of nature, but also in the virtual world is something that you're familiar with and you've been doing. Have you been yeah. playing any Fortnite recently? I haven't been uh, too much lately. I've been doing the real thing until I came down here to Florida the last couple of weeks. But yeah, I enjoy spending a lot of time in a tree and um, bow hunting mainly is what I do. And uh, so that Fortnite kind of takes that same kind of anticipation and thrill. So that's kind of what I've gravitated towards. But I haven't played it for a while again. But it's uh, Call of Duty is kind of the same thing. I've tried to mess around with that. So it's... uh, Something maybe I'll look into now here shortly again. Yeah, it's it's difficult. The learning curve is pretty steep. I know that I, I first tried Fortnite with my son, what, a year, year and a half, maybe two years ago, and it seemed like I'd play every game and not get a single kill. And then he introduced me to Call of Duty and immediately I had a kill. So I thought, okay, this is something I feel like I can, um, I can invest a little bit more time in. <laughs> yeah, cool. Hey, as you are, are moving away from our the off season, we have a, a client of Cameron's that's very uh, excited, eagerly anticipating partnering up with you. Da- Daniel Berger is ready. He wanted to know, he wanted to make sure that you were prepared for a shark shootout. Are, are we getting anywhere near getting ready for that? Oh yeah. I've, I've got Berger uh, boog in the back of my mind all the time. I'm, I'm excited to play with him and I actually committed to go play Mexico this next week. So uh, okay, nice. yeah, so I'm going to, I've been down here in Naples area for a couple of weeks. I'm not far from Tiburon where the shark shootouts played. So I'm trying to get my game in shape. I don't want to let him down. You know, I know he's been <laughs> playing well and I'm, I'm going to crack the whip. I can ride that guy. He's, he's playing <laughs> great. 
Well, I know just from speaking with him over the last couple of days, he's awfully excited to pair up, team up with you, and he's been working really hard over the last uh, week, and he'll certainly, I guess, connect with you down in Mexico because he's also scheduled to play down there as oh, well. Good. Yeah. Good. So I guess more on the business side of things, 2020, which now is the 2021 uh, Ryder Cup, I think that just as a, out, of a, out of a personal interest and probably interest to the listeners, I'm curious as to what a day in the life of the incoming or the Ryder Cup captain looks like. Can you give us a kind of a window into your world, let's say less than a year out now, and then what it might look like given that you've captained a Presence Cup team on the ground during event week? Yeah. Well, that's been a fluid situation because of what we've been going through, right? I mean, we were full steam ahead, you know, last January, February, you know, and then this pandemic hit, COVID, and um, that put a little bit of wrinkle into things. Obviously, we still were preparing like we were going to play all the way up until the deadline. I think in June is when they ended up calling it off. But we were preparing like we were going to go ahead and play the event. We were trying to see if we could play it with some sort of fans, you know, maybe not the full atmosphere that we're used to in a Ryder Cup, but maybe a reduced amount of fans, players and, and captains, uh, myself alike, we all wanted that experience of full fans. So, and then, you know, obviously it just wasn't safe. Wisconsin wasn't doing well and you didn't know what the regulations were going to be like in September and all that kind of stuff. So it, it came to a screeching halt pretty quick in June when, when the PGA of America decided to put a, postpone that and play it this year. And so it's been kind of on the back burner for me since then. Uh, I've been focused on, you know, trying to play a little bit more family time, obviously, doing the right thing because of this pandemic, you know, and, and that's always the hard thing. I'm sure we're, we're all thinking, what is the right thing to do? You know, we've mm -hmm. heard so many things. Should we stay in? Should we, you know, obviously we, I, we all wear masks, but what is the right thing as it relates to playing the game of golf? You know, traveling brings in more contacts, obviously, and the higher risk of getting it. So we've been pretty cautious, but as we move forward, that that intensity and my thought process is definitely going to go more towards what we can do to prepare for the Ryder Cup. A lot of that preparation has been done. So a lot of this going forward now is just to watch, watch these guys play, watch these young guys, try to spend some time out on the regular tour to get to know these young guys, guys that I haven't been around that much and don't know that well. So that's kind of my next thing is just to make sure that I'm out there, I'm visible, I'm there if they need, you know, to talk to me and just watch these guys play great golf. Interestingly enough, I recall back you were paired in the PGA Championship with both Daniel and Xander, I believe, in the first and second round, yes? Yes, yes. Yeah, and the question that came to mind, and it's happened prior to this event as well in years past, is what is the incoming captain's goals in uh, being paired with those types of players? Is it to uh, forge strength in existing relationships? Is it to make evaluation on skill sets that may or may not fit for uh, let's say the course that's coming up, et cetera, et cetera. You know where I'm going yeah, with this. I'll, sure. I'll let you go. Yeah. I think it's just to show that I'm there. I know what type of players they are. I know they're great players. I'm not judging them at their play during that PGA championship, you know, because I know that's so far removed from when the actual Ryder Cup is going to be. I think it's just building those relationships and making them feel you know, and I, I think I'm a different captain than some of these previous captains, to tell you the truth, because my resume is is okay. I've won a decent amount of times on tour, but I haven't won a major. I'm not a intimidating or imposing figure. I very laid back, very casual. I like to get along with everybody. And I've been a part of some teams where the captain is quite honestly the reverse. You know, I played for Arnold Palmer. I played for Jack Nicholas. You know, uh, Paul Azinger, you know, a kind of a Ryder Cup stalwart and a major winner. I've been around some of these captains where you have them at such a high pedestal that it's almost intimidating. And I think I'm a little bit different. I'm, I'm kind of actually the opposite. And I feel like that's going to be good because I, I can, you know, no one needs to show me anything because they probably have a better resume than what I have. They've done some great things in the game of golf. 
And um, I'm just there to be a friend, a captain, and to get these guys going in the right direction and put these guys together with who they want to play with and, you know, listen to them. I think that's my biggest thing is just to be there, listen to them. And, and then us as captains, my assistant captain, we get together and make sure we make the right decisions. One of the best parts of having these conversations, Steve, is that we're required to dig into some research and to really look at some a player's career in depth. And you, I would say it's fair to say that with the wins and the longevity that you have, it's been a little underrated. And it must be because of how you just understated the accomplishments that you've had <laughs> throughout your career. So you must have had a hand in that. And we, and we want to dig into that career because there's a lot that, that we're ready to learn from you with regards to many, many topics. But to wrap up on the Ryder Cup, you mentioned the decision not to have fans at, at, or wrestling the decision makers trying to figure out what the best course of action was. And I attended my first Ryder Cup in France the last time I had it with Cam. And I just don't think those fans, you can't underestimate or understate the importance that the fans have to that event. And with that comes a tremendous amount of pressure no doubt. that I think you'll agree is just a really unique arena. And so as you're scouting these new players a lot, maybe some that you haven't uh, aren't as familiar with, what are the, the psychological traits? What are the things that you're trying to assess or maybe the psychological tools that you're trying to look at and say, okay, this guy's going to be ready for this big stage. Obviously, all the players that are going to be in the mix have demonstrated great skill, great results. They're all unbelievable players. But are there one or two things that you're looking at that, that will indicate that, okay, they're going to really be able to step it up on the biggest stage in golf? Yeah, that's a great question. And you don't know that answer, I don't think at all. I guess you can look at how they've played in some major championships, you know, how they handled themselves down the stretch, winning contention at a major. Some of these guys have already won majors, so you know that they can handle it. But the Ryder Cup is a different animal altogether. It's probably the most nerve wracking event that you'll play in as a player, stepping on that first tee, uh, representing your country and wearing the red, white, and blue. And having a partner, you know, something that is quite honestly overlooked because we're not used to having a partner. So it's, uh, you just don't know. Sometimes the guy that's got an unbelievable resume that you expect to do well, kind of can stumble. I mean, it's just, it's just different. Then you get a rookie. I watched a couple guys at the President's Cup this last year, Cantlay and Xander. They played unbelievable, you know, I mean, it's, and overseas, you know, a on foreign turf. So it's something that you just don't know until you put them in that situation. It's hard to tell, but you get a good idea. And I think that's the whole part about being comfortable, getting these guys comfortable. If they're comfortable with the guy that they're out with, they can lean on that person if they have to. I remember, Cam, you'll appreciate this. Jordan was my first, or Jordan, I was Jordan's first uh, partner. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know how old he was at the time, 21 or two or just 20. 20. There you go. And uh, it was at Mirfield at a President's Cup. And, you know, I was excited to play with him. And, you know, he, he really struggled the first few holes, you know, and, and I had to settle take, him down. Yeah. Well, I had to take him aside like my own daughter, you know, kid, you know, and like <laughs> I do with my daughters and say, listen, Jordan, this is, I got you right now, but I know, you know, a couple good shots in and you're going to be fine, but just hang in there. And, you know, I mean, and then all of a sudden he hit a couple good shots. It took him a few holes, actually, yeah. you know. As I recall it from watching it, it was the par five fifth around the corner. He made birdie, and that was after your conversation. And I say yeah. this, having the full facts after kind of debriefing after the event with him, and it just speaks to the value of having experience on the team and having someone that you can partner up with and lean on them for right. strength where it doesn't doesn't otherwise exist. That's exactly right. You got to. You got to believe that your partner's got your back in this deal just because you never know what's going to happen uh, with your own game. And, and you got to have that trust and the, the faith in your partner that he's going to come through with you. And I think that can settle you down when you're out there playing as a team. So I think that's a huge deal is to have these guys go out there with a guy that they're comfortable with. And that's what we work so hard going forward, trying to make these pairings and make sure that these guys are comfortable with their guy they're going out with. Yeah, thank you for digging really deep there into your perspectives as incoming Ryder Cup captain. And uh, it, to put a, a bow on this, what I can do is I 
uh, polled a couple of players and asked them what sort of captain they would anticipate uh, Steve Stricker being. And it's hard to read the label as the expression goes when you're inside the bottle, but I guess your um, accuracy in identifying who you feel like you're going to be as a, a person and therefore as a Ryder Cup captain is certainly authentic to what the perception out there is. In fact, uh, both of them, without consulting with each other, came up with the name John Wooden, who is widely regarded as the most, I guess, uh, friendly and empathetic and best buddy coach of in, in the history of all great coaches. So, um, yeah, I, I pay that as, I guess, reflection and also um, echoing that sentiment. But anyway, thank you. <laughs> Moving on, one place we typically start these conversations is origin story. And as we've already mentioned, the career spanned, at least the professional career, almost three decades. The career as a golfer, we're not too sure. We couldn't quite find out any uh, true age of when you started. So I guess the Reader's Digest version, a shortened version of what it was like for you starting out, how much your parents impacted upon your involvement in golf. And then uh, maybe as a more detailed question, which if you forget, because I tend to ask multiple questions inside of one, <laughs> is what it was like to grow up in a cold climate being yeah. a, a developing golfer. Well, I was fortunate. We lived in a small little town, 4,000 people, Edgerton, Wisconsin. And um, my dad played golf, was a good single digit player. He was a electrician by trait, blue collar family, working family, had one other brother who has now passed away already, but uh, he played golf. So I, I lived literally 150 yards from a public nine hole course. And it was a, it was a family thing. So it was something that I aspired to try to beat my dad, beat my brother. We played on the weekends, something that I look forward to all the time. I had friends that played and then just kind of during the summertime would just continually play. But I played other sports. I played basketball and baseball. And back then it wasn't the way it was now where you just kind of concentrate on one sport. Back then you played, if you were athletic enough and you liked other sports, you kind of played them all. And I was no different. So I played those three sports and gravitated to the game of golf because I felt like, you know, going forward, that was my best ability to try to maybe go to college and play golf. So went to University of Illinois and, and um, had a good experience there and, and then just kept seeing positive things at every level. So that was, that was kind of the cool part would see some quick things right away, you know, won my very first pro event up on the Canadian tour and kind of gave me the confidence to continue, continue on. And, but I think to ask that, answer that second question about the cold climate, I felt like it was a, a blessing and I still lean on that today because it gives me the ability to get away from the game of golf, kind of get that desire and that fire inside of me burning again and look forward to coming back after a cold spell. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we would go five months without playing up there and I'd play basketball at the high school level and I would look forward, you know, we'd go hit balls if there was one little patch of green grass available, you know, and so you got that desire and you worked hard during the summer months. And then, yeah, I still feel like I need that today. I think that's why I go hunting and sit in a tree for a while and, and just get away from the game for six weeks or eight weeks and build that desire back up again and, and then uh, work hard when I'm supposed to work hard. You said a couple of things in there that really resonated with me. I didn't grow up in a cold climate, but I certainly grew up with a father that worked in an industry that would be considered blue collar. He wasn't an electrician, he, but he was a tradesman. He was a carpenter by trade, nice. um, which, which meant that my growth in the game of golf was in many ways regulated by opportunity that related to money. I'm wondering whether yours was the same and I'm wondering how that impacted your uh, development as an amateur and then ultimately as a professional because my sure. professional career was self-funded. Yeah, great question. Growing up in that small town, my parents had enough money to the point of providing uh, some junior tournaments here and there. You know, I, I wasn't a national junior player. I played a couple maybe as I got older but didn't really travel all around just because of that money purpose. We had everything that we kind of wanted or, or actually or needed, I should say, at that level. We weren't wealthy. We we're just a blue-collar, middle-class middle family. And But I do remember taking a trip in the actual town of Edgerton. Like I said, 4,000 people raised some money for me to actually take the trip. I think it was down to Innisbrook maybe for the uh, holiday tournament over Thanksgiving time when they used to have an AJGA event down there. 
so the town raised some money for me so I could go, so I could go. And obviously, uh, as I turned professional, I, I got some sponsors. My father-in-law helped me construct a contract. We got 10 sponsors at six grand a piece back then, you know, 60 grand and mm-hmm. the money um, that I would earn would go back in there. And if I could fund myself, then I would just continue to move on with my own money and, and not have to have them continue to put money in. And then I was, I was able to fund myself because I was making enough. I think they put in the initial 30,000 and that was it. They put in 30,000 twice and they only did it. They only had to do it one time. And then I paid them back plus interest. So that made me feel really good. And I was off and running. And like I said, I won my first Canadian tour event. And then it took me four qualifying schools to get onto the tour. And then actually, you know, finished, I think, 50th on the money list that first year. So kind of just had this nice progression all the way through. And yeah, money was sure. I mean, for everybody, it's the thing, you know, I mean, it kind of dictates what you can and can't do in this game, especially growing up. And, and it was no different for me. Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Tyless, and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons. Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T-Series, the engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour, delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T-Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. I'd love for you to dig in a little bit on what you would attribute that early success to. Because you say it took a, a few tries to get through Q school and then 94, you're 50th on the money list, then 40th on the money list, and then 96, fourth on the money list. So I don't know if you would describe it the same way, but to me, that's a pretty quick start. That yeah. looks like a player who acclimated to this new stage and leveled up very, very quickly. And I'm curious what you would have attributed that, that nice start to your PGA Tour career to. Yeah, and, and once I got there, it was such a relief to get there. And then I went over to Hawaii, I think was my very first. And I had, I had Monday qualified for a, f- a few events here and there prior to getting my card and actually made uh, the cut in a U.S. Open at, out in New York where Phil won. Um, can't come up with a name right now. but So I, I had some taste of what tour life was like and made some cuts had a chance to win up on the in the Canadian Open before even in 93 before even getting my tour card. So that showed me some signs that I could actually play out there. And then I went to Hawaii after getting my card and and actually finished 14th or something like that and came to Tucson and actually had a chance to win. I I was coming down the last hole and I was either one behind or tied at the time. Andrew McGee ended up winning, but I I ended up bogeying the last hole. I hit it right at it but came up short in the bunker and didn't get it up and down. So finished second there. So I, again, bang, quick start and a positive start that kind of propelled me uh, going forward those three years. One of the first things I do when we talk to somebody is I'll pull up there on the World Golf Ranking website. There's the chart that shows a career, kind of where someone's been ranked throughout their career. It tells a little bit of a story. And I think the the part of the of that chart that you'd you probably have worked hard to forget is that little middle period where there's a little bit of a slump. And it's probably the area that I want to talk to the most because I think there's the most, there's as much as we can learn in that little period as we try to learn lessons from when we fall short. Yeah. And so I'd love to know that period of time, which I don't know, what, what would you call that? What year range would you call that? Well, had a horrible year in 97 and that was totally the Tiger Woods problem. <laughs> he came out. God damn I, 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 I played with him. I played with him uh, at AT&T in 97 and I went around with him and I, I don't know if he wanted to play with me because I, I came off two wins in 96, fourth on the money list. So they were touting me as kind of the next thing. And, you know, and then all of a sudden I go home in the snow and hunt and do all that. And I come out and I'm not very sharp. And uh, then I play with Tiger Woods and I'm like, wow, I don't have one thing that this guy's got. That's not true. But anyway, (laughs) well, you know, I mean, he was hitting his driver past, uh, you know, or he's hitting his two iron up with my three wood and 
just hitting these bombs and just did everything right, shaping the ball, putting, chipping, you know, you had everything, obviously, right? And I'm like, holy cow, is that what I have to compete against now? You know, is that, and that, it took a toll. I think it took a toll on a lot of players. And, and from that time on, I'm, you know, searching to see what I could do better. So I struggled. 97 was a very poor year. 98, I had a chance to win a PGA championship, but I was just kind of up and down, floundering around. 2001, won the, the uh, world match or the, uh, yeah, the world match play over in Australia, but then kind of just not very solid, you know? And then I uh, hit a skid in 2003, four and five. And I wish I would have done that, or I wish I would have known some of those things earlier in my career that I knew, like after I came out of that slump, you know, it was more about, I don't care. I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care if I don't have Tiger Woods game. I don't care if I have Phil Mickelson's short game. I don't care. I'm just like, I'm Steve Stricker and I'm going to do the things that I know that I'm good at. And I tried to go to work and fix those things. I, I went to work and fixed my backswing. It was long and across the line. And I would hit, as you guys know, you either hit it out to the right, you flip hook it, you know, it's a two-way miss. So I went to work on shortening it and then getting it where I knew what it was going to do. And I took ownership of my swing. My father-in-law helped me, but to a lesser extent. Uh, and I kind of, like I said, took ownership and I said, this is what I want to work on. This is what I need to do. I'm the guy out there hitting shots. You have a tremendous amount of knowledge, but deep down, I got to know where it's going. So that's what happened. And then when I came out of there, I really didn't care. I, I just kept working, doing the things that I know that I'm capable of doing and, and use my strengths. And that was short game putting, ball control, keeping it in the fairway. And um, that's what I did. And it was a good formula for me at that time. Yeah, the, the strengths, I hope we get to uh, unpack deeper into the conversation. But hand in hand with the... Uh, skill side, the physical stuff that means the ball doesn't behave as we want it to as players comes the psychological aspect, the confidence pieces. And there's this elasticity where the physical skills may be there and they may be moving in the right direction. You may be optimistic and then you get into an event. It doesn't quite um, necessarily produce what you expect it to. Is that, was that your experience is the first part of the question. And secondarily, if that was, was there someone you leaned on or a set of skills that you leaned on to help move those psychological traits, those psychological skills uh, north like you did with the physical skills? Over my years, I've tried to talk to some sports psychologists and I've never been a big fan. I uh, felt like I needed to do it myself always. You know, they would tell me something and I'm like, well, that seems pretty, what's the right word? That seems pretty logical, you know? And, and I'm like, I feel like I do that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it seems kind of redundant. I just never, I'm kind of bullheaded in a way. And I just like, well, shoot, I do that already. You know, I mean, you may give me a breathing exercise or a different way of thinking about it, but I just felt like if I could get my game in order and feel good on the golf course, all that psychological stuff is going to take care of itself. So I, I never was a guy to have a psychologist, yeah. a sports psychologist at all. And again, I came out of this slump. I went back to tour school in 05, missed that by a couple of shots, but I still had past champions status. So it meant getting in 10, 12 events, stuff like that. I had a family. I've had two girls, you know, and I'm like, well, you know what? There's worse things in life. I can play my 12 events and I'll uh, work on my game and see if I can't get a little bit better. But if it's 12, it's 12, you know, and just kind of max it out. And so I did that and took some of the pressure off myself and I saw some signs right away coming out of that slump again and had a decent finish at AT&T and then had a fourth place finish in Houston and you know and then really the kicker was 2006 US Open at uh, where we just played at Wingfoot and was right up around the lead going into Saturday and my driving held up I actually drove the ball well and that was the bugaboo before so that gave me a tremendous amount of confidence and and knowing that i'm on the right path going forward yeah deeper question back to the technical pieces how did you identify what the uh, most important facet was that you needed to change and yep. the before player were you a player that played multiple ball flights and became more of a, a fader or, or a, a tie drawer of the ball or more of a one-dimensional player did you simplify the game from a flight perspective yeah. yeah very good question there too i was always a field player 
I still am, but I got more technical with it because I knew enough about the swing from my father-in-law and I knew going long and across the line and getting real handsy wasn't really conducive to good play out on tour. So that's where I went to work. I said, you know what? I need to not really shorten it up. I just need to get control of this at the top. And it turned into a pretty short backswing, but I knew where the club was all the time. I gripped it crazily hard. I just didn't want that thing to get out of control, you know, and that's kind of what it led to. But I knew where the face was all the time. And I'm like, I'm going to get this ball going right to left. And that's what I did. I got it going right to left. I knew it was going that way. So I could stand in there when there was trouble on the right, knew it was going to, you know, hook away away from from trouble. Yep. And then when the pin was on the left, I could, you know, that was my go-to where I could start in the middle and work it towards the, work it towards the hole. And I, I've never been a guy who will sit up there and try to cut it into something. I've been pretty one dimensional and that's what I did. I said, let's just get this going one way, eliminate the uh, right-hand side of the golf course for me. And, you know, I went to work doing that. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I simplified it. You may have answered my next question a little bit in there, but it's worth digging in on because maybe the most requested thing of golfers that come see coaches like Cam and I are, I want more consistency. Yeah. And that period after 2007 for nearly a decade, you just live in the top 10 and there's a, there's a streak in there, which I don't know if it is the current record, but I read 49 straight cuts made in that stretch. So I have to assume that at some point in those 49 events, you didn't have it. Like you, you didn't have it going on all cylinders. And and that's a conversation we have with our professional clients all the time is that, okay, there's going to be weeks and we don't have it. How do we make sure that our B game or our C game can still, we're still competing. We're still making money. We're still playing on the weekend. And I think part of that, as I read it, and I try to theorize why that would be true for Steve Stricker is one is, well, there's a really good short game there. That's, that's going to save those weeks where it's not there. And, but there also has to be a tactics, some kind of a, a tactical strategy that makes sure that even if everything's not on go, we can still find our ball and and get it around. And so I would love to dig in if there's more things like that, that the rest of us can learn to try to achieve some of that consistency that we're all after. Yeah. And that's what I harp on my daughters all the time when they play. It's like, you know, if we can get the short game and the putting down to where that saves the shots when you're, you're not always going to hit it great. You're going to miss greens, you know, and you're going to hit 10 greens in a round and you need to get it up and down those eight times or whatever. So that was my strength. I had one other little simple, simple goal that I, one of the years I actually finished, I think second on tour, if I, if I remember right, but it was to play the par threes and even par. I, I watch so many guys to this day, they feel like they've got to flag it. They got a tee in the ground they got a perfect club or whatever, and they feel like they've got to stuff it on a par three, you know, and they go flag hunting. Well, my, my mentality when I was really playing well was hitting the, hit the smart side of the green, center of the green, even if it's 30 feet or whatever, two putt, make your par on the par, five, or on the par three and move on. And if I could do that, if I could play the par threes and even par for a tournament, you, you actually do very well. And what ends up happening is you end up making that 20-footer, you make that 30-footer, you end up making, you know, a few birdies on these par threes and you end up playing them under par. And then the other thing is when you miss the green on those par threes, you're not beating yourself up walking up to the green. You're like, hey, my goal is still to make a three. So I can get this up and down, you know, move on, make my three and go on because on tour, there's the par fives to take advantage of, and there's always some short par fours to take advantage of. So my, that was my goal. That was one of the things that I uh, really worked hard trying to do. The short game piece, I just want to ask, ask a question, is whenever someone does have the, this short game performance, it's, it's pretty natural for us to want to know, well, what can we learn? Or, or as a coach, we're curious, how did that develop? Jordan has a really good story about some environmental things of, of him being at a certain the chipping green that he was on and the kind of balls that he has and yeah. led to a certain type of short game. Is there a similar story for you in development? I don't know. You know, I, I think it, it all, it got better as I hit a lot of balls uh, in the wintertime off mats. I got super shallow. I think you don't want to get steep on a golf mat, you know, you kind of pick it off there. And that's kind of what led to my turnaround too. I end up getting pretty shallow with my swing and just picking it off the mat. I, I don't take a lot of big divots hardly any divots back when I was playing really well. I I would just pick it right off there and and 
my short game kind of evolved the same way. You know, I, I don't have a lot of wrist hinge. I kind of just do a lot on rotation. And that's why I think, you know, my wedge play is strong back then. It was strong. That was part of my best part is I think just based on rotation, you know, I could dial in that yardage just by how far I move my arms. You know, I didn't have a lot of wrist set to kind of have that club explode in my hand. So that's, that was another thing that I really keyed on, you know, 125 yards and in and being real strong with that as well. So I think, I think to some degree it was, it came from the redo of my swing, getting shallower, having the club control that I had and um, hitting golf balls off those mats. Yeah. And so therefore to be, as you were ranked as one of the best from inside of 150 for a great number of years as you were, and quite frankly, as I watch it, even to this day still are, um, there's the technical piece that you described right there, but there's also the practice piece is there's something that you did formerly or currently still do in practice to hone in on those inside 150 skills? No. <laughs> I'd Just love the technical piece. I, I would love to tell you. I would love to tell you. I get on TrackMan and uh, have TrackMan spit out. Okay, hit it uh, one seventeen, and then I hit it one seventeen. No, I. But, I uh, there's no I old Volkswagen on the driving range that you say this no, is the yardage, and I know I hit that yardage right. when I hit the Volkswagen. <laughs> no, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty much just repetition. You know, I'll go out on the course a little bit and pick some yardages and hit it too. But I just kind of have always been a decent wedge player and. I'm not that technical. Even when it comes to putting, I'll, I'll just go to a putting green and putt. I don't sit there and do the wheel or, yeah. you know, uh, have to make so many from three feet or anything like that. I Today, I actually putted against a, a rail, you know, to try to straighten my backstroke a little bit. But other than that, I, I really don't have very many. Uh, you know, that's why I look at these kids that come out on tour nowadays and it's like, <laughs> holy cow, they got... You got gadgets for gadgets, you know? Yes. Patrick yeah. Reed's got 75 T set up around the right. hole and he gets three drills, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I think you've, you've dovetailed really nicely into the next kind of the phase of the conversation, but to close out um, the skill side of the conversation is you've always been an amazing putter. And you just mentioned, I really don't do drills. I just step up on the putting green. And I guess the question is this paradox of skills and style. And we are of a philosophy. I say we as coaches, Corey and myself and anyone who's around us of skills trumping style, meaning if a player can do with the club that does with the ball, what they need to do with that, then we'll let idiosyncrasy flourish. And certainly as one looks at the way you address the putter, maybe not necessarily the way you move the putter, but certainly the way you address it with the heel up the ground, that would qualify as idiosyncrasy that wouldn't necessarily be a chosen preference in teaching. And really what I want to understand is how that developed. You know, it developed because back probably when I started putting with that putter back, I think it was a 2000 or 2001 when I started putting with that putter. So it's been about 20 years. It probably just wasn't set for me. It just wasn't back then. You just kind of picked up some putters and, you know, you didn't really look at the lie angle so much probably, or I didn't pay attention to it. I like, I said, I like the way it feels. I was making some putts with it. What I've learned is that what that does is it, it's messed with the rotation, right? I mean, when that heel is up in the air like that, it's harder for that toe to sweep over. So when I try to putt with a putter that sits flush to the ground, I'll miss the putts to the left, mm -hmm. you know, because there's more face rotation. So it's like, I know it's just, like you said, it's an idiosyncrasy. I know what that putter's going to do. I've tried to get away from it. I've tried to get that putter soling flatter on the ground. And at times it feels great. You know, it comes off straighter. It's easier to hit on my line, but under the gun, it just doesn't, you know, it's hard. It's harder to, you know, harder to make it work. So you've, you've found a mechanical advantage it. for you. Yeah. I've, I'm used to the way it is. And I'm used to that face rotation because it's, um, you know, that heel is up in the air. How does that then dovetail into when Tiger Woods, for instance, says, Hey, Steve, Hey, Strick, come on across here and take a look at my putting. Tell me what you see. Or the most recent case, which is a case I'm close to, Ryan Palmer says yeah. in the middle of this year, hey, Steve, come across and, and take a look at my short game. And you filter those things through your eyes. So when those players or that type of player um, asks for your advice, then are you able to look beyond how you do it and then provide them some sort of um, fact base or opinion based that's custom or, or a solution for them? Yeah. 
Cause I know what I do. It's, it's almost like, you know, when your dad tells you don't do as I do, but do as I say, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we've all heard it, Yep. but it's kind of, it's kind of like that. I know that isn't right. I know what it does for me and I know I like that, but yeah, when if Tiger were to, you know, it looks better when it sits flush. Right. And I just said it to my daughter the other day. I'm like, she likes to get her heel up in the air too. I'm like, listen, let's get that heel down. (laughs) Daddy doesn't come on. Yeah. So it's, it's like, I know the right thing and I, I, I can look past what I do. I try to put a feeling to it when I try to help people. And, and uh, sometimes it's worked. Sometimes it hasn't with other players, but you know, it was nice to help Ryan and I've helped Tiger in the past with his putting. And that actually bit me in the butt one tournament. But other than that, it was, it was all good. You teed us up really, really good for a conversation that we wanted to have, which was on the player that would have answered the question that Cam asked about training much differently than you you did, where you're like, yeah, I just go putt. I don't have a million, a library of drills that I'm doing. And I, I think that you have a really unique perspective because your career has spanned such a long period of time. And now you have these younger players that are maybe approaching it a little bit differently. And I'm curious, what are, it may be a two-part question, what are the, of all the things that players have access to now, whether it be coaches, technology, you know, the analytics, the facilities and the equipment, what do you look at and say, you know what, in 94, I would have been really, really good if I had that. And, and maybe on the flip side of it, are there things that you think back about the successful beginning of your career where you think, man, I'm glad that wasn't around because that's a distraction or that's noise or that really wouldn't have helped me get to where I needed to be? You know, I can't complain about anything I've, I've done. <laughs> You know, I mean, I can't look, I, I don't even, I've learned so much out on tour through the, obviously the ups, but I learned more about the, when, when I was down, there's no question. I learned way more about myself uh, and my game when I sucked, you know, looking back at it, I wouldn't trade any of it. I really wouldn't. I, I, I feel like those three years where I really stunk it up provided me the opportunity to get great. And I came out of that better than I ever was. You know, I mean, it, it made me focus. It made me realize what I'm doing as a golfer, very lucky and fortunate to be, to be able to play the game for a living. I realized I I wasn't capable of probably doing anything else. I was a golfer and I'm always going to be a golfer. And I'm, you know, I thought about quitting and doing something else. I'm like, well, wait a second, what am I going to do? I'm probably not qualified to do anything else. So let's go get this and work hard to get better. So I don't think I would have done anything past, two th- you know, like 2006 to currently without those three years of struggles. So I can't say I wish that didn't happen because I don't know if any of the other stuff would have happened if I didn't have those struggles. You know what I'm saying? So sure. I, I wouldn't really trade anything. I had some great experiences along the way. And now I get to captain my second team. You know, I captain a President's Cup and now a Ryder Cup. And, you know, whoever would have thought that I surely didn't think I was going to captain either team. So it's just been an incredible journey and I'm blessed to have been able to do it all. Indeed. And we're blessed to be viewers from the outside and also fans from the outside of yours and all you've accomplished. And you've been amazing with your time at uh, ticking in here close to 50 minutes. If we can, can we finish with some more quick hit hit questions? One of which... Be rules czar for the day, and I want you to weigh in on distance and this next generation of player that's coming through, or even the generation of player as Bryson DeChambeau is in these days of um, going through this metamorphosis and, and, and hitting the ball the distance he is and creating as much power and speed as he is. If you were the rules czar for the day, is there anything that you would adjust? Or, and the second part of that question would be, if you were a player in your 20s, how might you react? Yeah, I've tossed this around a lot. I think if I was a governing body today, I think I'd put a cap on this or even scale it back a, a smidgen. Bryson's going to hit it long no matter what. Even if they you know, scaled this back a little bit, these long hitters are still going to hit it long. I love the fact that amateurs, people who play for fun, can go out there and hit it a long ways. I, I love that part. But quite honestly, I think on the tour level, you know, it's made some great courses kind of non-existent. You know, Augusta, some of the shots that they're hitting in there, you know, or short irons are hitting in there on some of these long par fours. So I think it could scale back a little bit. It's kind of non-committal answer, I know, but 
I'd love to see us kind of scale back a little bit. And like I said, these, these guys who are strong and big are still going to hit it far. And then as a player, would you have any reactions as a player if you were in your oh, early twenties? Yeah. I probably, I'm starting to work out now again. And since this quarantine and, and I've never been a guy who works out, but you know, I've been feeling a lot of aches and pains lately. And I'm like, you know, I want to play this game for another seven years, probably till I'm 60 or low sixties or if I can play like Bernhard Langer when I'm 63, I'll probably play when I'm 63 and four. But, uh, you know, I would probably take better care of myself if I was at it again. If I was younger, I would try to get bigger. I would try to get stronger. That has changed the game tremendously, I think. Guys take that very, very seriously now. When I came back from those cruddy years and then started playing well in 06, 07, 08, and, you know, that stretched in through there and I heard guys, um, oh, I got to go to the gym. And at that point, I'm playing well and beating a lot of the guys. And I'm like, okay, you go to the gym. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to make, <laughs> I'm going to make three and four footers, you know. And that was my mentality. But I, I'm kind of changing my tune. And I think it's important to be in good shape. I think it's important to take care of your body because I've had some injuries. I've had a back surgery, neck problems, all that stuff. And this game will do that to you. So I think if I would have taken better care of myself earlier on, maybe I wouldn't have had those problems, you know, so I would have definitely changed if I was 20 again. The 20 year old, keep that 20 year old player in mind really quick and give some advice on tournament prep, because I assume that the familiarity that you have with all the golf courses that you play every week on the PGA tour over yeah. the end, the, the last few years that you've been playing, that there's a real efficiency to your prep that may be missing from a younger player, maybe a rookie on the PGA tour. So I, I would love to hear what your objectives are Monday through Wednesday and how you would help a younger player prioritize to tip the scales for a good outcome for the week. Yeah. And that's a balancing point, I think. And that each individual is different, I think as well, but you have to be careful not to over-prepare. I mean, prepare before you get to the tournament you get a practice round in, you're kind of behind the eight ball a little bit as a rookie in your first couple of years when you haven't seen some of these courses. But I think you can really do damage early in a week by trying to play a lot, trying to practice a lot, because when it comes to Thursday, you have to be rested and ready and mentally ready and fresh, you know, and sometimes I almost see the opposite in some people, you know, where they're they put so much time and energy in the first two or three days that they're already fatigued by Thursday. And so it's finding that right balance, I think, and what's good for you as a player. And for me, it was always play a little bit, play the pro-am, get comfortable with your swing, obviously get comfortable on the greens and the short game stuff. I would always do a lot of that short game stuff, which doesn't take a lot of energy, but just prepare for the conditions, you know, more so than anything. Think about advice to your daughters. Think about advice to a uh, developing high school player, AJGA level player. And oftentimes we get asked the question, well, how do I build confidence and how do I overcome nerves? And I know that they don't exist on the same continuum. You can be nervous, but still be confident. You can be not nervous and have no confidence. But what would your discussion be like with your daughters relative to nerves and confidence? Well, now you're digging into that psychological things. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a player. And I'm not, I'm not asking a sports psychologist. I'm asking uh, an elite, a world-class yeah. player. <laughs> well, I always go to preparation. I feel like if you prepare, and that's not preparing like once you get to the tournament, it's preparing the week or week and a half or two weeks prior to. And if you prepare and you feel comfortable with your preparation and you've done enough hard work in your preparation, that's going to help your confidence. So I've always been the guy of like, trying to prepare as much as I, I, I never went to a tournament. I can really say that with a straight face and not lying that I never went to a tournament without preparing. I mean, I, I wanted to play well each and every time I went there. So I would, I would say that same thing, prepare at home, be ready to play. And what comes first, right? Good play or confidence or confidence in good play. You know, obviously you got to talk nice to yourself. You can't tell yourself. I heard, uh, I can't remember if it was my wife or one of my daughters. No, it was my daughter. It was my, uh, it was Bobby, my oldest. She's like, this is the hardest putt in golf as she's stepping up to the putt, right? <laughs> like I said, it's no sports psychologist, but it was a downhill left rider four footer. And I'm like, honey, it's a tough putt, but you got to go up there thinking that you've hit a million of these putts and you're going to make it. It's just another putt. You can't go up there thinking this is the hardest putt in golf. You know, I mean, you're already putting yourself behind the eight ball. So 
I guess just preparation in my mind and uh, feeling good with your preparation because that leads to good confidence and you start to hit good shots during that preparation, which leads to good confidence. And and was preparation specifically more playing time for you or was it good proportion, a split roughly 50-50 of skills, practice time in isolation on the putting green or short game area, driving range, et cetera? Yeah. And I'm a strange guy when you ask that question because I, I spent all my time hitting balls in the winter because when I off the mats, out of a trailer. When I really started to get good, I would spend so much time hitting balls because I couldn't play. But then once the late spring and summer came around, then I would just play. So I put my time in during the winter time, you know, in November, December, January, February, up in Wisconsin, just hitting balls off the off the mats. I'd go to a tournament during that time and then just play and chip and putt because I had hit so many balls that, you know, I felt like I had it grooved in there a little bit, worked with mirrors, you know, I was comfortable with what was going on. And then I would just go to work on the short game stuff and getting the speed of the greens when I would, and get to a tournament. When I came from Wisconsin, I would come into a tournament on Sunday, you know, to give myself another extra day of getting to hit off grass instead of a mat. So for me, it was different. Hitting balls uh, a lot in the wintertime and then playing more for preparation in the summertime, just going out to play. Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's getting dark there, so we're going <laughs> to let you We're gonna let you off the hook here. Although we could continue I, to talk for multiple well, hours. And, and that's what I was going to say. We've got maybe I'll 40 other to, questions. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll speak for Cameron here. Like This is why we love having this conversation, to, to be able to to get with somebody that not only has the experience that you have, but, but that is as generous with the wisdom that you have. We're really, really appreciative of your time. I appreciate uh, it. Information, man. Yeah. yeah and and I know that next week isn't just a scouting trip. You're there to play and we'll and uh, win. we'll be cheering hard for you in my <laughs> yeah. next week. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.